The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. We're in Proverbs 17 this afternoon, so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. Proverbs 17, we're looking at verses 1 through 14. Proverbs 17, verses 1 through 14. This is the Word of God instructing us in wisdom. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a houseful of feasting with strife. Servant who deals wisely will, will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. An evildoer listens to wicked lips, and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their father's. Fine speech is not becoming to a fool, still less is false speech to a prince. A bribe is like a magic stone in the eyes of the one who gives it. Wherever he turns, he prospers. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a, thousand, than a hundred blows into a fool. An evil man seeks only rebellion, and a cruel messenger will consent against him. Let a man meet a she-bear robbed of her cubs, rather than a fool in his folly. If anyone returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. The beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit the quarrel, or so quit before the quarrel breaks out. This concludes the reading of God's Word. May God now be pleased to add His blessing to it. Well, one of the top areas where people seek help is in relationships. There's, this, is, this is especially so when it comes to marriage. There's a lot of books and articles and so forth and so on on it. This is also true, though, when it comes to how do you deal with children? How do, you, how do children deal with parents? How do you deal with difficult family members? Or simply just the everyday relationships where we run into somebody or we run into conflict. This is where people often seek wisdom. And in today's passage, the book of Proverbs is giving us a heavy dose of wisdom in this area. And there's four relationships where we need wisdom or where we should exercise wisdom. And yes, I did alliterate once again. Family, financial relationships, fools, and friends. So those are the four relationships. First, family. Verse 1. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Well, this is one of those comparison proverbs that shows how bad a certain sin or situation is. 
Here it compares two completely different opposite meals. A dry morsel, so this dried up piece of bread, versus a feast. Not just an ordinary meal. A feast isn't just an ordinary meal. This is where you cut the fat in calf, you bring out the best wine. So you have two diametrically opposed meals. Now, how many of you would say, hey, what's for dinner tonight? Oh, dried up piece of bread, a crouton. Nobody would say, oh, that sounds appetizing, that sounds great. So obviously, the dry piece of bread is inferior to a feast. And yet, having the dried up piece of bread with peace is better than having this feast with strife. Now what this is showing is that it is much better to have peace than even the best of meals. It's better to have peace and go hungry than to have this feast where there is strife. And what we should take away from this is that we should seek to pursue peace with one another, seeking to do our part in providing a home where there's peace, joy, happiness, rather than being a part of the problem in anger, selfishness, bitterness, and strife. Then verse 2, a servant or a slave who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. Now back in that day, the son was the proper heir. But this right here is a big reversal. It would be culturally shocking to them back then to say that it's not the son who's the heir, but rather the slave. This would have been a major reversal in their culture. Now, this is not saying that this will most certainly happen. If the son acts shamefully and the slave acts wisely, then the slave's going to get the inheritance and not the son. It's just a general statement, a general truth. But it is highlighting what is discerned. That a son who acts shamefully, he should not receive the inheritance, but rather the slave who acts wisely. It shows that wisdom is superior to everything. In verse 6, grandchildren are the crown of the age, and the glory of children is their fathers. So this proverb is saying that family is a blessing. The Bible speaks in other places of the blessing of one being able to see their grandchildren, their children's children. This is a crown, something that's honorable, something to not be ashamed of, something to rejoice in. And it's likewise a glory and honor to children, having an honorable father and grandfather, as this verse ends with. This proverb is saying that we should delight in, treasure, and be thankful for good family. Think about how much disorder stems from a fatherless home or a dysfunctional family. Think about how much the world is trying to attack the family. The world which is which lies in the power of the evil one. But God's word says that we should rejoice in it and honor it and therefore protect it. A second relationship where we should exercise wisdom is financial. We begin with verse 3, which uses wealth as an analogy for God's word. Verse 3, the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold 
and the Lord tests hearts. The precious metals such as silver and gold were put in intense heat in order to purify them. The intense heat would bring out the dross and the impurities and would leave the gold and silver, thus making it more pure. Well, Scripture uses this as an analogy for how God sanctifies us. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, so the trials, the difficulties that weigh us down, that press in on us, that put pressure on us, are used by God to test our faith. Now this is not test as in, let's see how well you do. Oh, you do well enough. You failed. Uh, you're rejected. Or more trials now. Rather, this is test as in trying. As in putting fire on gold for the purpose of drawing out the impurities that are already there. God sends trials our way for this purpose. He already knows the impurities, the sin, the dross, the things in our heart, the unbelief. He knows where that they lie in our heart. And so He sends trials and difficulties our way, handcrafted by the Lord in order to deal specifically with those to draw them out. And though they are painful, and they actually seem to harm us, why am I going through this? This is so difficult. How can this be for my good? This just has to be um, a difficulty that I hope to get out of, and then things will be good for me. But rather, it's the trial that is good. It's meant for our good. God knows exactly what He is doing, and He is carefully cutting away at the spiritual cancer in us. We do not fault a doctor that does surgery on us to cut away at cancer in our body. Afterwards, we feel terrible. There's a time of recovery. But we know that He did a good thing. But our perfect physician in heaven, He does this perfectly. He cuts away at exactly what needs to be cut away at. And He brings the perfect difficulty and trial into our life for the purpose of doing us good and sanctifying us. As commentator Charles Bridges says, nothing but dross will perish. Some of what God will cut away at is the sinful pride that causes us to exalt ourselves over others based on their earthly status. So verse 5, whoever mocks the poor insults his maker, he who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. So this is great pride to look down on someone who has less earthly status or possessions than you. It's to judge someone's identity on the basis of their earthly status. It's to act as though the things you received were not given to you by God to begin with, so you have nothing to boast in. And so you do end up insulting your maker in doing this. And this is more than merely how much money somebody has 
in the bank, but also one's lot in life. And this is why the verse goes on to say that he who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Now obviously this is not referring to somebody that's glad that calamity has come upon their life. Rather, this is referring to being glad at calamity that has come upon somebody else's life. To delight in it, even secretly in your heart, that someone has much worse circumstances than you, so that you are in a better state. God says that this one will not go unpunished. We are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We are to feed our enemy if he is hungry, clothe him if he is naked, and to bless those who curse us. And that's because this is how God has dealt with us. When we, His enemies, were spiritually hungry for righteousness, Christ filled our hunger by obeying the law in our place so that we would have a righteousness not of our own by which we may stand before God when we were naked in our sin and shame without any righteousness by which we could stand before God covered in our filth, Christ stood naked and shamed in our place so that we would be forever covered. If this is the way that God has dealt with us when we were enemies, how much more should we not deal with others when they insult us, when they criticize us, when they are a burden on us, when they are a spur in our side, well, if God loved us and we were enemies, how much more should we not love others? And then verse 8, A bribe is like a magic stone in the eyes of the one who gives it. Wherever he turns, he prospers. So this proverb is talking about a bribe, not from the perspective of the one being bribed, but from the perspective of the one giving the bribe, the briber. In his mind, the bribe is extremely valuable. And it doesn't need to be money, like paying somebody off to do some injustice, but it could be, here's something valuable that I'm going to use to try to control people with, to get my way, to manipulate them. It's like a charm. It's like a god by which he can control people. His relationship with others is to control and manipulate them with his own idols, offering them that as a reward to try to control them and then withdrawing it as punishment when they don't do what he wants. This kind of relationship is one of manipulation where one is trying to control another, get something out of them in order to get what he wants. This is why an idolater is often uh, someone very manipulative, easily angered when he or she does not get what they want. But instead of this, the relationship should be one of seeking to bless others. A third relationship where we should exercise wisdom is fools. So we saw family first. We saw second, financial is financial relationship. Third, fools in verse 4. An evildoer listens to wicked lips, and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. So in the book of Proverbs, we are told quite a bit what evildoers say. But here, we are told what evildoers 
listened to. You could tell if someone is evil not only by what he says, but by what he wants to hear. He listens to wicked lips. He listens to deceitful schemes and lies because his heart loves it. Because he is a liar. And this is actually one way in which God punishes the wicked. In 2 Thessalonians 2.11-12, Paul says regarding unbelievers, Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And the takeaway here is that we should not only not speak lies, but we should also not hear lies. We should not love evil and lies, but rather we should love the truth. But speech is also involved. Verse 7, fine speech is not becoming to a fool, still less is false speech to a prince. So fine speech, speech on important matters where it requires wisdom to speak on, Lofty topics is not fitting for a fool. It's like trusting a child to make an important business decision or trusting a thief to handle the family finances. Fine speech and fools do not go together. He needs to first get wisdom. But just as unfitting, if not more so, is false speech for a prince, which is really contrary to the way we see it today. Almost, well, if you're a politician, you're going to lie. Shouldn't be that way. But this reveals that speech is a valuable thing, and it is only those who are trustworthy who can be trusted to speak it. Then in verses 10 through 11, we see fools, and that our relationship with them should be to avoid them, generally speaking. Verse 10 A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into. A fool. As the 17th century particular Baptist John Gill put it, a word to the wise is more than 100 blows to a fool. All it takes is a rebuke, correction, pointing out error in doctrine or living, and the wise man will take it to heart. He will consider it at least. But you can beat a fool with 100 blows, he will not be affected. This is how hard-hearted and set in his ways a fool is. He is so unwilling to hear anything wrong about himself because of the pride in his heart, trying to establish his own righteousness, trying to justify himself, where there's no room for him to be wrong. He can't be criticized. So that you could beat him with a hundred blows, and he still won't change. He may not yell and shout when confronted. He may even be verbally agreeable to you. But his heart will not budge. But one godly rebuke is all it takes for the wise to take it to heart. God has worked grace in their heart for them to be receptive to correction, open to reason, teachable and pliable to one's godly rebuke. Being teachable is one of the qualities that comes with wisdom. In verse 11, an evil man seeks only rebellion, and a cruel messenger will be sent against him. 
So a fool does not seek correction because he is dead set on his own way, on his rebellion. He wants to live by his own rules and rejects authority except that of his own. And so he's going to be punished. A cruel messenger is going to be set against him. And back in that day, a messenger would not only come and bring a verbal word, but he would also bring a punitive word. The king has sent me to execute you, and he gets executed. That's what is meant by a cruel messenger. This is saying that evil men will not go unpunished, whether in this life or the life to come. When the king of kings sends his messengers, his angels, to execute his final judgment. In verse 12, let a man meet a she-bearer robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. Now living in Wyoming, we know something about bears. We uh, understand the danger of encountering a sow, cubs especially, a grizzly sow. But imagine going up to a grizzly to take her cubs away. Probably not a smart idea. And yet it is better to experience that than a fool in his folly. It's not merely the violent nature of a fool, but his words that tear others down bring devastating ruin to your reputation, speak lies, speak deceit, constant grumbling and complaining and critical spirit that is quick to point out your faults and an inability to cover them and show kindness and grace. Their deceit and craft that take advantage of you, that manipulates you. There always seems to be an ulterior motive. It's their drunkenness and the damage they do to the life of others who have to live with them. The list can go on and on. The folly of a fool is very great. And so when possible, of course it's not always possible, because we, we, we have family members, uh, we have spouses, but it is better to avoid them and to see to it that we ourselves are repenting of our own foolishness. Then verse 13, if anyone returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. So Scripture forbids returning evil for evil. Yet this is worse in that it returns evil for good. Still remember one particular police officer uh, in Omaha. He uh, had five children, and his uh, wife left him, leaving him alone with these five children. And some fellow officers raised support for him uh, in order to help with child care and to take care of some costs. And so they brought uh, this money to him, a nice large sum. They did good to him. But he took that money and he went on a personal cruise with it. Boy, did that make them mad. And even, even unbelievers understand this. And these officers were, were unbelievers. Uh, they intentionally did not want to work in the same crew as him. And changed even the area in which they worked and the time in which they worked. So they did not have to work with him because he returned evil for good. But this is what every single one of us has done to God. God has been good to us. God has given us our life. God has given us our breath. God has given us uh, everything that we need. 
And we as his creatures, what do we do? We have repaid him with evil. We have turned our backs on him. We have sinned against him. We have used his good gifts to replace him, uh, to worship the creation rather than the creator. What does God do in return? He repays us with good. Here is God's good to us. We return evil to him. And so what does he return to us? Good for our evil. He sends his son to take our place. He sends his son to be crushed in our place. This is how God has repaid us who believe. Us who are evil. Sending his son. It's amazing to think about how good God is. That God would return our evil when we had done him no good. No reason for him to do us good. But he, out of the fullness of his unchangeable nature, instead repays our evil with good by having his son pay for our evil in our place. Fourth relationship where we should exercise wisdom. So we've seen first family, second financial, third fools, fourth friends. What should our relationship be like with friends? Where should we apply wisdom? And we begin with what could go either way. It could go under the third point with fools. But uh, sometimes it's really hard to outline Proverbs. But verse 14. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. So quit before the quarrel breaks out. So this is speaking about the beginning of strife, which is analogized to letting out water. It's like a dam that has a crack that begins to leak. And once that water gives way, there's no stopping it. And so, just as an engineer would look at a dam and start to see a crack and say, that needs to be taken care of because if that gets any worse, there's no stopping it. We're going to have a mess on our hands. This is the way it should be when it comes to quarreling, when it comes to strife. We don't wait into the middle of it when everyone's heated. Rather, we try to stop it right away from the beginning. We need to exercise self-control in our spirit when we feel our anger rise and tempers start to flare up and we want to say something that we later regret. In verse 9, Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. So to cover up an offense does not mean a corrupt covering up of things that need to be exposed and dealt with, such as leaders disqualifying sins. Rather, this is referring to loving somebody by not exposing them to shame when their sin is not a matter of public rebuke. Uh, so this pertains to things such as not gossiping, not slandering, not breaking the ninth commandment, which includes seeking to protect the good name of our neighbor. So if somebody falls into a sin and they have true godly sorrow for it and they repent, we don't go around telling people about it. Did you hear what so-and-so did? Let me tell you. No, God's Word tells us to cover an offense, to protect the repentant sinner from shame. Now, if he continues in that sin without repenting, then we bring others it, we, we bring others into it, according to what Jesus says in Matthew 18. Also, if it's a scandalous and disqualifying sin of a leader, 
uh, who is a threat to the vulnerable, then that ought to be brought to light. But outside of these, we seek to cover others' sin and shame as they struggle and as they fall at times and as they seek to grow and repent. And it could also apply to our heart attitude towards others. Rather than focusing on their sin and faults and stewing over it in our hearts, we overlook them in grace, patience, kindness, and forbearance. This can also refer to letting things go when we're sinned against. If someone offends us or sins against us, while we can't address it with them, yet we don't hang on to it, hold it against them, or keep a record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And this is the idea behind what the second half of the verse goes on to say by repeating a matter and therefore separating even close friends. It's the one that brings up things from the past. Or it is to treat them with contempt or with indifference because you are harboring bitterness in your heart against them. But beloved, is this the way God dealt with us? Did He not cover our transgressions and sin by having His own Son exposed to our guilt and shame? Did He not cover us with His perfect robe of righteousness, which He had to earn by being born of a woman, born under the law? This is how He dealt with His sinful bride. This is, therefore, how we should deal with others. If this is what Christ has done to cover us, being exposed to the wrath of God in our place, then can we not also seek to cover others, forgive their trespasses as God has forgiven ours, and not repeat a matter since God Himself does not repeat our sins, for He has promised this, that He will remember our sins no more. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to apply these truths by your Spirit, that we may walk in wisdom, may walk in the holiness that you have given to us in Christ, since we have been baptized into Christ, that we have been crucified with him, the old self has been buried in the grave, and we have been given new life in Christ. Indeed, it is Christ who lives in us. So help us by the Spirit to walk in the newness of life, to walk in wisdom, all this wisdom that is found in Christ that's been given to us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.